Welcome. Ooh. Oh, I'm off. I am off the charts. I'm off the charts, Stefan. You're too hot. Excuse me. Yeah. Easy. Uh, welcome to the Green Majority on CIUT 89.5 FM or in one of our loved radio syndicate partners or in the Green Majority podcast. I am David Franklin Irwin Hostetter with Stefan Christian Irwin Hostetter. How you doing? And Lauren Elizabeth Cor Latour. No relation to the goddess Persephone. It's just the same sound. That's that's key information that we need to deliver. And uh, today we're going to discuss the ooh wonderful debate that occurred last night uh, on the 29th of, of September. Uh, Canadian pension funds giving money to the GOP. Uh, the UN summit that happened last week, Moose, KKR, Deep Adaptation, and possibly some other stuff. Um, seeing how it goes. And so beginning, uh, you can consider yourself blessed if you weren't one of us suckers whose spirits were forced to weep through the hour and a half debate between Trump and Biden on the 29th, since it was an unnerving and demoralizing nightmare of senile men being admonished by Chris Wallace that featured the President of the United States implying that the Proud Boys should hang around polling stations intimidating voters and that any win for Biden would prove the vote was rigged. Biden, meanwhile, did manage to string a few coherent clauses together, unlike his opponent, and when it came to climate change, Trump said uh, humans partly caused global warming, but he would not, uh, but that we should still put no limits on carbon pollution while Biden said he did not support the Green New Deal, but that his plan would create millions of jobs. Emily Atkin pointed out for her heated newsletter after the debate that Trump proved in it that he did not know how to defend his own anti-environmental actions, which is why he stayed conspicuously quiet during the 11-minute climate discussion, and that Biden failed to mention uh, that doing nothing on climate is worse for the economy than acting, but that his, quote, climate plan is pretty much in line with the science. Yeah, so this, I described this experience uh, to Lauren before we started the show as the worst hour and a half I've ever experienced on television. Mm. And I, I think anyone who did not, do not watch this, do not go back to watch this, don't even be considered watching this. Um, but I'm, I'm sort of curious... Lauren, what your perception from the outside of someone who did not watch it was? Yeah, I very, very intentionally did not watch it, did not tune in, and endeavored not to go on Twitter that much last night. And by that much, like, obviously, I still went on. I'm completely addicted to my phone. But um, it was basically the one minute, one minute, 30 seconds I saw on Twitter and social media of the debate. It looked like... I feel like we've all started to overuse the cutesy phrase dumpster fire in the last year, but like really that is what it looked like. And I, and I, <laughs> from all I saw of it, which was basically like that, that clip that everybody loves where, where Biden tells Trump to, to like shut up man or whatever. It's like, I, my biggest question more than anything else, because we knew this was going to happen. We knew this was what Trump's tactic was going to be. Why doesn't anyone utilize a mute button? I know there's a tech in a booth with the producer behind him with full and complete control of those microphones. I don't understand why it's either deemed too offensive to the candidate, like the, the debate experience or their ability to communicate with each other. I just don't understand why they can't mute a, con a contestant, mute a candidate when a question isn't particularly directed to them. Yeah. And I have that similar question um, when it comes to Canadian debates, you know, in that there are always is crosstalk in there too. And like, there's just got to be a better way to do this. Or I'm actually becoming significantly more uh, open to the concept that debate is maybe just not a useful style to learn anything about anything. You know, like there's no reason why we've decided that debate is actually a useful way to learn anything. No one could have seen last night and thought they learned anything. Zero people. No, and I mean, what, it's it's a format that like lords going to Oxford in like 1100 decided was a good means of, of communicating and, and determining an idea or determining a, a pathway forward for a particular group of people. Like it's, it's, it's archaic. It's outdated. There has to be a better way of communicating this information. 
and putting these these candidates head to head in some sort of public like they're I don't know. I just don't get it. And the fact that this is going to be the first of, of, I'm sure, several debates. I don't quite know how their system in states works, but I imagine there's at least two or three still to come. And the fact that that people are going to be put through this again in a matter of a couple of weeks just seems insane to me. It seems like such a such a poor use of time and resources. Yeah, yeah. There are two more presidential. We'll see if they actually happen. And one vice presidential, which may at least be coherent. Um, the I, I am I am in some ways. Uh, I, interested in a concept of a more town hall debate where like it's just individual voters asking questions they find they find personally important to the candidates and just let them answer to the voters but very little actual back and forth conversation but mostly actually to other people that to me would strikes me as something interesting and the the other couple things i will pull from this debate and, and then throw to you lauren again one was that they actually did mention climate change which is interesting because Chris Wallace did not originally have that in his list of questions. The The climate change question was actually brought in, uh, you know, there was one, one of his other questions he had listed, but it wasn't one of his sort of set out topics, which I think the fact that the Fox News host brought climate change into the conversation was at least notable and important in regards to just how, you know, how much it is, is seen as an important, it is growing in its... Um, you know, salience amongst amongst at least the people who are deciding these types of things, and yet and yet I will say it was still posed in a ridiculous way to Trump. It was like, "Will you say you believe in climate change?" And to Biden, it was what was basically, "We think that your plan will cost millions of jobs. Why won't it?" And that's and like so the Republican just has to say, I believe in climate change and that's passing, quote unquote. But Biden has to sort of explain the complicated nature of the way that investments work. Yeah. And an asinine degree of analysis went into this. And by asinine degree, I mean literally none. That was an odd way of phrasing that. But uh, but no, you're right. It is notable that there was a question on climate change pitched to the debaters last night because somebody again, it was on Twitter. I haven't verified this fact, but claimed that there hasn't been a single question related to climate change in a televised presidential debate in something like 12 years, which seems bananas, but also like maybe true hasn't happened since, since what, since that means like the, like Obama's presidency, first candidacy, Obama presidency, then, um, which again, like kind of makes sense from a timeline standpoint when I think about it, like, yeah, um, there was a brief period of time in like 2007, 2008, when America cared about climate change before the first recession happened. And then, and then it all left from there. But, um, but so, so yes, the degree of questioning and the type of questioning left a lot to be desired. But the fact that a question related to climate change was raised is I suppose a small victory. Yeah. And, and the last thing I'll, I'll, (laughs) <laughs> small yeah um and last thing i'll say on this which i think is uh, sort of adjacent to the debate but i think important which is i tweeted out a couple things of how the national post covered this um and and it's very similar to how the globe covered it it's very similar to actually the front page of the washington post and the new york times basically all, all of these legacy media institutions ha- the 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 headline was something along a fiery debate or a, or how much crosstalk there was passing no judgment on the fact that almost all of the interrupting was done by Trump to the point where Chris Wallace a you know Fox News conservative basically had to keep yelling at Trump to make him be quiet it was arduous to watch this debate but but beyond that even the National Post went as far as to quote Trump as uh, 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 basically saying that he's done more in 47 months than Biden had done in 47 years as their top line headline in a debate where, as Dave noted, Trump straight up said that Proud Boys should stand by and also that he would not ex- refuse to say that he would accept the vote, the, 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 the vote if he lost. Like, this is a man who's literally just stood up in front of all of America and said, I am trying to rig the vote and I won't accept it. And my violent supporters will, will help me if they need be. And somehow legacy media all still couldn't break from their both sidism to even begin to have that conversation. You know, sure. in other articles, maybe later down there were, but your top line headline, which is mostly what people will see in four of these legacy papers, 
none of them came close to being a, an actual reasonable representation of the horror show that it was. Yeah, and, and I don't know if that's both sideism. I don't know if that's um, like fear of upsetting the owners and investors in a given media outlet. I don't know if that's simply because they know that's what will get eyeballs and clicks or people picking up a newspaper anymore. Uh, I, I, I would love for an editor to explain that mentality and that decision making to me because really all I take away from seeing a headline like that, because yes, it was the National Post that caught my eye and was particularly heinous. And it wasn't the first time they've had a really bad front page in the last couple of weeks. But like, if anyone <laughs> is still subscribing to a post media paper, this is this is a good reminder and a good reason to maybe move your money to another media outlet. There, there are plenty of other ways to support journalism. There are plenty of other ways to get your news. You really don't need to be giving the National Post any of your money. Um, so to move on uh, to our next story, which as as thrilling as American politics is, so is the Canadian pension plan, uh, a a hotbed of excitement mo- most of the time. Uh, they well, you may actually remember we did cover them. I believe it was last year, the year before, uh, when they were having to defend some of their other more questionable investments in regards to. I, I, at least owning fossil fuels, so there's a push to get them to divest, which they had to respond to. And I believe they also owned at one point some for-profit or parts of for-profit prison companies in the States, which also drew the ire of uh, of investors in Canada. And to, to remind our listeners, you know, the Canadian pension pl- plan is our money. You know, you, if you have a job in Canada, you are paying into the CPP. And so the, and the whole purpose of it is it, is it, it's a way to pool our money to, you know, invest in ways that they think can raise, raise enough money. And so, uh, and so that we get a pension when, when we retire. And, the, and that becomes the most consistent defense when uh, they are criticized. You know, is that the CPP, uh, heads of CPP say, well, look, our job is to make money. Our job is doing social good almost by default because we're trying to ensure that you have enough money to retire. And so and so that's that's how we are. And they also come out as being, basically being like, our job is also not to be political at all. They, they very strongly do not claim that they're apolitical. Which is why this report that came out recently, uh, it was there's a Globe article about it, and and also one I'm pulling actually right now from from the Energy Mix, which highlighted the fact that a company called Creestone Peak Resources, which is 95% owned by the Canadian Pension Plan Investment Board, in 2018 spent more than six hundred and seven thousand dollars, so six hundred and seven thousand dollars to to shape uh, elections in in Colorado which is where it's placed and they were basically supporting people that would they're basically supporting Republicans um, or quote unquote pro business as as they like to call themselves, which base which were places to avoid getting you know tougher regulation on on fracking in the states, uh, in the state, including three hundred thousand dollars to a pro Republican Senate majority fund and two hundred thousand uh, dollars to Better Colorado Now, which was supporting the Republican gubernatorial candidate Walker Stapleton. Uh, who was he worked for you know president for the bushes in the back of the day and the and then the last hundred thousand dollars went uh to protect Colorado uh which which said it opposed quote any ban or restriction on hydraulic fracking so this is a like here is Canadian money being used to support Republicans in Colorado. That is that is what is happening here, um, and you know there's there's a, there's a couple other pieces here, but I want to throw to you first, Lauren. Yeah, so I guess basically just like to make it clear, the reason they're supporting Republicans in Colorado is because the Republicans in Colorado will continue to prop up the natural gas hydraulic fracturing fracking industry within that state and within the states surrounding it, and will allow the fossil fuel industry to continue to flourish to a degree in North America, and and I and. What continues to sort of blow my mind about revelations like this is not only is this deeply unethical from from a like from the standpoint of of a pension plan that is supposed to theoretically be like apolitical um, and also like I don't 
love the idea of my pension plan going to fund um, like the, the burning of the planet and climate change because as much as we like to be told that natural gas is a bridge fuel, it is not. It contributes to climate change quite badly. But, but anyway, so not only is it deeply unethical because of that, it's, I, I don't understand how this in the long term is a good investment for people who are going to retire in this country because we know that we're not going to be able to continue to burn fossil fuels. And we know that even though natural gas is theoretically, quote unquote, a bridge fuel, it too will sunset and will likely sunset in the next couple decades. So I don't understand how it's how it is, quote unquote, fiscally responsible for us to be investing our pension dollars in a sunsetting industry. And, and at no point, I think, has anybody ever actually been able to explain that to me. At no point has an economist or somebody who is arguing, who is, who is putting forth that argument, been able to properly explain to me how investing in a company whose assets will become stranded in less than a couple decades is, is, is a prudent financial decision to make. Um, so I just, I, it's question mark emojis. <laughs> all around so much confusion and so and to, further down in this in this article in this, this conversation the globe sort of notes that that cpp uh, talks all about the 6.6 billion dollars that it's invested in renewable energy uh but that should be compared to the 11.6 billion dollars it still has in fossil fuel companies and you know when you when you have you know, time and time again, you know, you have the federal government come out at the throne speech and say that the only way forward is a green transition. And you have you have more and more pension funds from around the world divesting in 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 in, in, the, in the oil sands they have. You know, you've seen you've seen other ones go even further than that. And the fact that Canadian pension pl- plans, whether it's C- whether it's CPP or we've previously covered, you know, AIMCO, Alberta's pension plan, uh, are are consistently not only seemingly propping up in some ways these oil industries by buying them, but also then advocating for the for what would cause a delay in actual action. You know, to me, there's there's absolutely no defense possible of a company owned by the Canadian government to be advocating against regulations in another country alone. Like, let, let's forget everything else. The Canadian government has no business arguing that the people of Colorado should be emitting, should be A, experiencing more fracking, or B, should be should be dealing with more, should be dealing with anything else, uh, like the, the increased effects of climate change, given uh, what we sort of tell ourselves we are, which again, you know, this show is, you know, not, famously probably, uh, you know, do not agree with the more common notions of Canada. But still, like, this is... Like if this was reversed and there were, you know, and I'm sure it's is happening that there, but like if this reversed and the American government uh, or any other government in the world was it, owned a company in Canada that was trying to make sure that it was allowed to keep destroying Canada more, we would have an issue with that. And that's would be right to have an issue with that. You know, and I'm sure it's happening, especially in Alberta right now. But like, you know, here we are. Yeah, well, well, no, and especially because it's like, at least under Canadian election law, an organization that is working on uh, election campaigning in some way, shape, or form is not allowed to take foreign money, isn't allowed to take money from a corporation in the States or another organization or, or a funder in the States. So the fact that we are directly meddling through funding uh, this, this, this election, this statewide election in Colorado, it's not happening right now, but like statewide elections in Colorado um, really, really blows my mind. I don't understand how that's permissible. And it's also just like, I don't know, I think just a good reminder that like next time Canadians look at the states and think, oh, wow, what a messed up country. I don't understand how you continue to elect Republican lawmakers. It's like, well, it's our fault, (laughs) at least in this one state. This one case, we know that that we are part of the reason that Colorado will continue to elect Republican lawmakers because we paid for them to be. So, yeah, it's a lot of guilt for us to carry. Yes, exactly. Um, moving on to slightly more positive news, the uh, over sixty countries, including France, Germany, Canada, um, and more, have 
put, uh, have begun to promise to put wildlife and climate at the heart of their post-recovery plans. Uh, you know, this happened, I believe, on Monday. They they announced this 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 leader. I think they call it the leader. This leadership uh, movement. Um, uh, they cross five. They cross across five continents, and accept that it's that the, that the state of planetary emergency due to the climate crisis and rampant destruction of life-sustaining ecosystems, and their goal is to restore the balance with nature, governments, and the, and the European Union has made a ten-point pledge to counteract the damage to that to systems that underpin human health and well-being. And uh, so this includes uh, renewed effort to reduce deforestation, halt unsustainable fishing practices, eliminate environmentally uh, harmful subsidies, and begin to transition to sustainable food production systems and a circular economy over the next decade, which is a lot of good words. You know, the fact that they're claiming they want to go to move to a circular economy in the next 10 years uh, is, is incredible. I will wait until our government, uh, you know, removes harmful subsidies, uh, aka fossil fuel subsidies. Maybe that's a first step. Do that once, and then I'll have a conversation about the rest of these things. Uh, but to you, Lauren. Yeah. No. Like you, it's like I hear something like that. Um, I've heard news that Trudeau was very well received at this UN summit, and that by signing this pledge, he he earned a lot of goodwill with with other lawmakers around the world. And um and like yeah, it's great. I mean, theoretically, Canada increasing its protected land areas to thirty percent from twenty five or whatever we're currently at. That's that's fantastic from a theoretical standpoint. Um, where I do get annoyed is um when I hear about when we get these nice pledges and the government pledging to increase protected areas and do so in a way that is respectful of uh, indigenous sovereignty and indigenous land rights. And then I turn around and hear about stories uh, like what's currently happening in Quebec. Um, for listeners who might not be aware, there's a, a couple indigenous communities, uh, the Algonquin of Barrier Lake and Kitaganzibi in, in Quebec, just a couple hours kind of northwest of Montreal, who are currently staging um, uh, physical blockades and calling for a moose moratorium because they have noticed over the last three years that moose populations in this area have been steadily declining in density and in, and in number. Um, and they're saying this is we we live off this moose population. We uh, are respectful of this moose population, and we live in sort of um, we live with them all the time, and we always have. And we don't think that the population is currently healthy enough for sport uh, for sport hunters to come in and be able to hunt this season. Um, they've made this request for the last three years for there to be a moratorium on moose hunting. And because it has gone unanswered, they have physically blockaded um, the highway into a specific uh, wildlife refuge. And, and where this kind of ties in with this uh, leadership for leaders pledge for nature or whatever it is that Trudeau signed last week, it's, I don't understand how we can continue to have a leader and a government that continues to profess their commitment, not only to biodiversity, not only to land protection, but, but to doing it in a way that is harmonious with and respectful of indigenous sovereignty, and then turn around and continue to let things like this happen. I understand that the prime minister doesn't have jurisdiction over a specific wildlife refuge and a specific community in Quebec, but he is the prime minister. He does have a lot of sway. Um, he does have direct communication lines with, um, with lawmakers and with uh, sort of leadership within the province of Quebec and within this area. Um, and he also is somebody who has committed time and time again, most recently last week, to upholding UNDRIP. And when we're getting, uh, when, when we're when we're pledging as a nation to respect the tenets of things like free, prior, and informed consent, and then uh, and then going in and allowing people to sport hunt when it has been expressly stated by the indigenous communities in that area that that's not going to be the best thing for that ecosystem right now it just doesn't it just doesn't jive it doesn't make sense and it and it proves that all of those nice words in the and the leadership pledge for nature are in fact just nice words and are just in fact there to to placate people to 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 sort of jump on that briefly you know 
the same the same kind of failure from the federal government, you know, is seen within within the Mi'kmaq conversation is happening out east uh, in regards to the fact that you know the treaties have not been respected, uh, and and you have these white settler fishermen basically saying you don't get any of the lobster despite the fact that that exists within the treaty that's you know that is that is their lobster they are allowed to do this and once again you don't see the federal government really stepping in uh to the point where you know uh even just today uh the Mi'kmaq parliamentarians had made a call for a new body to deal with this conflict to allow them to directly talk to the federal government because that's the nation-to-nation relationship that is required for this thing to move forward and you have to like if every time you try to like so often indigenous issues in Canada are uh, able to push to the side because the federal and provincial governments keep pretending it's not their responsibility. And, and there has, if you're, if the federal government is really actually earnestly wants to deal with this as a nation to nation relationship, which they have said a time and time again, then, you know, then this is the only way of doing it. And these, and, you know, indigenous peoples for, you know, hundreds and hundreds of thousands of years have sustainably, sustainably taken care of these different, you know, whether it's lobster or, or moose or, you know, even salmon on the West Coast. And, and yet, you know, here we are now pretending that, you know, this modern day scientists or modern day, you know, fishermen uh, of, 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 of settler uh, ilk know better and that their opinions should be what we run with, uh, you know, completely ignoring the the colonial destruction of so many fisheries or or other, you know, or the fact that, you know, bison don't run across the Great Plains anymore, you know. Yeah, no, no, the federal government especially likes to talk a lot about co-management of protected areas and co-management of ecosystems and co-management in conjunction with the indigenous communities that that are rights holders and land holders of, of a given area. But the thing is, part of co-management, one of the main tenets of co-management, especially with Indigenous peoples, is respective traditional knowledge bases and, and that traditional ecological knowledge that, that a lot of people are familiar with. And uh, it, it, in the with the situation with the Mi'kmaq out east and with the Algonquin uh, calling for this moose moratorium, what we're seeing here is a rejection and um, a disrespect of their traditional knowledge base because, at least in the case of the Moose Moratorium, um, the government did send over uh, people to do an aerial survey of the land, and they said, yes, well, we did see that the population was a little less dense, that populations were a little bit down from previous years, but we don't think it's that big a deal. So you're getting a government who says we respect traditional knowledge and we would want to take it into account and we're doing consultation, but our scientists who maybe don't live here, but they flew over for a couple hours, said it's fine. So it's fine. It's, it's, it's just, it's so disrespectful. And, and again, what it ultimately shows is that a lot of the really positive language that's used around nation to nation relationships and respecting knowledge bases is, is really tokenistic language and is, um, whatever the opposite of earnest is, that's what it is. <laughs> um, it, it, to, to, to sort of wrap this up and, and bring it to a, to a bit of a point, the, 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 you know, as we're saying, what's interesting, of course, is that the, the people here who are claiming that they know better, the scientists and the, you know, and the, and the different, um, the different, the federal government or the fishermen or, or, or how you like, are the same people who have been in power for the last 50, 60 years, where we've seen, you know, the 68% loss of, of, of global populations of mammals, birds, fish, and amphibians, and reptiles, right? Not saying the scientists themselves are in power of this, but the, but like, you know, I, I, they were probably the ones arguing that we should not be doing this, but still, you know, the, the types of power structures that have been placed for the last 60 years, uh, are the ones that have led to this massive decline, which has led now to this, you know, new call out about, about, you know, that, that we're now going to take this seriously. You know, while we're still ignoring the people who had successfully and sustainably lived with these animals and creatures all this time. Like to me, that the thing is the thing that I, like, I can't exactly get over. Yeah. Yeah. And, and like really quickly, I know we're going to be moving on. I, I do just like, the green majority is not anti-science. We are not anti-scientists. Like it's not that we, it's, it's not that we, <laughs> right. It's, it's not that we don't think Western science is valid and Western ecology is valid, but there is something to be said for the fact that it's, it is a knowledge basis that's very rooted in colonial ideals, very rooted in, in white Western ways of thinking that isn't always that isn't always necessarily 100% correct and 100% reflective of the reality of an ecosystem. Ecosystems are really 
complex living, fluctuating, not organisms and anyway, but it's when, when we continue to take the word of a scientist who maybe spends a few hours a week or maybe a couple days out of the year in a given area and we're, and we're taking their expertise over the expertise of the people who, like you said, have lived there for thousands of years and have really deep, really long, like long lasting knowledge bases that can stretch back millennia, that, that just doesn't seem to make sense. And it doesn't mean we have to pick one or the other, but it means that it, in an ideal world, it would be a, it would be an honest co-management system where both of these knowledge bases are taken into account and are blended and are built upon and, and, and work to strengthen each other. Yeah, for sure. Um, yes. Yeah, so I just wanted to mention, uh, while we're on this topic, uh, briefly, I suppose many might have forgotten many could have forgotten that we did appear to be at the beginning of this year, potentially maybe almost on some sort of verge of a reckoning with our uh, genocide and our history of genocidal uh, intent and attempt and um, activity in this country. When uh, at the beginning of the year, there were road uh, rail and road blockades across the country in uh uh, support and solidarity with the Wet'suwet'en land protectors uh, in Unistoten in northern BC against the CGL gas, coastal gas link, um, liquid natural gas pipeline that was going through it, which of course all ground to a halt with the um, uh, that that little pandemic that is still going on. Um, and it's important to note that the protest against the pipeline is still happening, and there are. New York solidarity protesters outside uh, just this past week in New York, uh, outside KKR, um, putting up signs and some police, uh, some light, uh, some light displays showing uh, solidarity with the Wet'suwet'en and how the protest is still going on, highlighting uh, that KKR is funding uh, CGL, KKR, the private equity firm, uh, and they're also funding um, police. So they fund police pension funds and they also invest in CGL and they're being protested and uh, it's getting some play on the media. Yeah, yeah. This, 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 let me not forget COVID uh, cannot, you know, make us forget that these fights continue and this is remains, you know, uh, remains important. And I believe even last week there was another call for, for United support in the, from uh, Watsutin. So keep an eye, make sure you keep paying attention to this because it's not going away. They're still trying to build this pipeline, everyone. Yeah. Um, no. And on that note, uh, something I did want to make sure I said this episode is that um, we don't do a very good job of updating our social media. It's something we're working on. It's something we're going to continue to try to do. So what I'm going to try to make sure I do by Friday this week is at least on our on our Twitter and on our Instagram, try to put up some links for people if you're looking to support uh, ongoing uh, wet sweat and anti-coastal coastal gas link efforts. Um, I'll try to put some links there uh, already up on our Instagram, which is just green majority, all one word, all lowercase. Um, there's a, a highlight story about the Moose Moratorium. If people are looking for ways to support, there there are links to support with your with your dollars and um, and by calling your MPs that way. Um, and I will also try to make sure to put up something about uh, supporting. Um, Mi'kmaq fisher folk out west or out east rather as well so um uh yeah try to check up with our social media here and there um we'll we'll try to post resources as much as possible great uh thanks so much uh we'll go off to a music break right now and then we're coming back with a deep dive into deep adaptation so stay locked here on ciut 89.5 fm stay locked stay locked <laughs> it's weasel in the moose <laughs> The soul remembers what the body forgets The heart remembers what the mind regrets And now we are going to look at deep adaptation. Are you good? Let's do it. Deep adaptation is an environmentalist subculture popularized by Jem Bendel, a professor of sustainability leadership at the University of Cumbria in the UK. His paper, titled Deep Adaptation, A Map for Navigating Climate Tragedy, was published in July 2018, made public on his blog, and then downloaded over 450,000 times, 
having obviously struck a chord with many people, possibly in part because they were eager for simple clarity around the question of the climate crisis, even if the cost of that clarity was mourning for the likely collapse of Western industrial society as we know it. The paper was featured favorably in the Financial Times, as well as Vice, as the climate paper so depressing it was sending people to therapy. I will now summarize the 13,000-word paper, keeping in mind it was written at the beginning of 2018. So the paper goes, the climate crisis is about to cause social collapse. So people whose job it is to make capitalism sustainable should rethink their lives. They should do this according to something called the Deep Adaptation Agenda, focusing on social and psychological resilience, giving up your so-called lifestyle, and restoring nature. Even existing climate adaptation literature about managing climate effects to maintain our current way of life is now irrelevant because it is now too late to avoid social collapse. Sustainability management and policy scholars should explore the implications of this, since it could render their careers and views about life in general obsolete. Social collapse, not explicitly defined by Bendel in the 2018 paper, is related to what he calls disruptive changes in the near term, and the recognition that climate change is an unfolding tragedy, and that, quote, it is time we consider the implications of it being too late to avert global climate catastrophe in the lifetimes of people alive today. Far from demoralizing people, these considerations can actually motivate many to a greater degree of action. The argument goes that we still need to prioritize mitigation and adaptation, but also recognize that we can neither solve nor cope with climate change. Without offering a detailed examination of the relevant, of the relevant climate science, Bendel infers that we're screwed because of what he calls nonlinear and possibly exponential warming trends from real-time happening now on the ground numbers, ideas from websites of researchers, and the mouths of eminent client scientists, climate scientists, rather than the slowly produced reports of the IPCC, which underestimate the pace of change. Thus, Bendel writes, quote, Nonlinear changes are of central importance to understanding climate change, as they suggest both that impacts will be far more rapid and severe than predictions based on, lo on linear projections, and that the changes no longer correlate with the rate of anthropogenic carbon emissions. In other words, runaway climate change. He then gives some data about jet streams and argues, that the author argues from the authority of the illustrious climate scientist Peter Wadhams that, quote, an ice-free Arctic will occur one summer in the next few years and that it will likely increase by 50% the warming caused by the CO2 produced by human activity, which proves that the UNFCCC targets are proposal and proposals are pointless. He also argues, uh, he calls sea level rise non-linear, notes that storms, droughts, and floods are getting more numerous and severe, the monetary cost of agriculture disruption is growing exponentially, half the world's coral reefs have died, in the last 30 years, carbon pollution is choking fish populations, and mosquito and tick-borne diseases are rising exponentially in some regions, and it's possible that existing atmospheric carbon is already set to produce 5 degrees Celsius of warming, and we don't currently have any way to remove all that carbon. In addition, methane emissions from melting permafrost and the Arctic Oceans could in themselves render every other consideration moot. The global environmental crisis is therefore already out of our control, goes the argument. Bendel then lists some various reasons why people might be psychologically and emotionally resilient to his argument, uh, sorry, emotionally and psychologically resistant to his argument, from strategic denial for the purpose of maintaining career relevance to confirmation bias to fear of the inertia of despair, to fear of death, to attachment to institutions, to NGOs not wanting to admit that they have failed, and to experts generally not wanting to scare the quote-unquote public. He then cites various studies suggesting that a decent percentage of this public 
already feels that we are doomed, and argues for the various ways that thinking about collapse opens up new and useful areas of inquiry. He asks, quote, Given that analysts are concluding that a social collapse is inevitable, the question becomes, what are the valued norms and behaviors that human societies will wish to maintain as they seek to survive? He concludes that we should prioritize psychological resilience, give up our lifestyles, rewild our landscapes, and forget entirely about sustainable development. Bendel nevertheless argues that we still need a worldwide campaign to transform agriculture and restore ecosystems, and we need to transform our political systems and so forth, but deep adaptation as a movement is about opening up a forum for people to come together to mourn and discuss the implications of the idea of inevitable near-term social collapse. Thus goes the argument of the 2018 Deep Adaptation paper. It was then, as mentioned, downloaded almost half a million times and has, a ma- had, a, has had a major impact on movements like Extinction Rebellion, which is why, in July of this year, two years after the paper was released, three members of XR, Thomas Nicholas, Galen Hall, and Colleen Schmidt, all scientists, but like Jem Bendel, not climate scientists, authored a paper published in Open Democracy, which was peer-reviewed by climate scientists, arguing that Bendel's original paper is not based on sound science, and therefore his claim of social collapse in the near future is not plausible, and the truth is bad enough without these kinds of apocalyptic visions. The argument in their paper, called The Faulty Science, Doomism, and Flawed Conclusions of Deep Adaptation, goes like this. Scientific clarity is now more important than ever, as it represents a. the truth about climate change, and b. the source of the authority of the movement, and by extension, its growing support. Prophetic and scientifically unsupported claims about the next few decades coming from men like Jem Bendel, therefore, actively harm the movement. The authors write, quote, The paper has significantly impacted the ideology and strategy of climate movement organizations like Extinction Rebellion. People have changed their life plans based in large part on this paper's predictions. It is therefore past time to show that deep adaptation is wrong. Not least because Bendel's brand of doomism relies heavily on misinterpreted climate science that undermines the credibility of his claims. The paper goes on to argue that blurring the distinction between coming hardships and unstoppable collapse is unjustified and reckless, and could lead to poor tactical or political decisions. The Deep Adaptation essay, the critics argue, is valuable for discussing the immediate emotional impacts of the climate crisis, its highlighting of the hyper-individualist, consumer-oriented neoliberalism that has choked the environmental movement since the 70s, and its focus on preparing for the terrible impacts of the climate crisis that are already in the cards. It also, however, grossly exaggerates tipping points, confuses non-linearity with unstoppability, ignores scientific consensus in favor of individual eminent climate scientists, and focuses on real-time on-the-ground data which seem to imply exponential temperature rises, but which can't logically predict a useful trend. Bendel's contention, for instance, that Peter Wadham's prediction of an ice-free summer in the Arctic will increase global warming by 50% in the next few years is shown to be false and counter to the work of hundreds of other scientists. Bendel considers Wadhams, however, to be eminent and therefore authoritative, even if his predictions are rogue. In addition, methane emissions from human beings are still much more a driver of climate change than methane emissions resulting from ecosystem disruption, and are themselves still much less important than anthropogenic CO2 emissions, which means that human beings are still very much in control of climate change, even though it remains possible that large amounts of methane could be released from permafrost. The authors also cite the Hothouse Earth study that we discussed thoroughly on this show, which states that uh, decisions made in in the coming 10 to 20 years could impact the Earth for tens to hundreds of thousands of years, if we force the planet out of its current glacial cycle, but does not conclude that this is inevitable. In defense of the IPCC, 
The authors argue, quote, just because the IPCC has sometimes given slightly conservative predictions on particular questions, that does not justify disregarding its overwhelming body of evidence and concluding that societal collapse is inevitable. There is also a legitimate critique to be made of the way that the IPCC's maze of qualifiers and caveats undermines its severe message. However, this is not the same thing as downplaying or underestimating the actual science. The critics then argue that the flawed conclusions of the Deep Adaptation paper demotivate people, delegitimize the movement, and obscure long-term planning. The paper also ignores real localized societal collapse happening now, like the theft of indigenous land, ignores the real culprits, which are multinational corporations, ignores justice, and distracts from the most immediate tasks. We therefore need the courage to embrace the horrible complexity of the crisis rather than an escape into simplistic narratives of inevitable doom. Bendel, of course, has had his response. And even though he has been unable to convincingly defend his contention that social collapse is inevitable in the next few decades, he has made the point that the paper was written explicitly for sustainability management professionals in order to get people with careers in corporate policy and sustainable development to rethink the purpose of their lives in the face of the immensity of the climate crisis. He has also highlighted the burgeoning field of collapsology, which studies the various possibilities and probabilities of collapse, which are not and cannot be the domain of climate scientists. He has suggested that his paper was meant only to invite readers to consider the implications of coming collapse and what it might mean for their lives and ideas, and he has argued that the deep adaptation community does not have a dogmatic attachment to inevitable doom, but rather provides a space for people to feel the question out and um, discuss useful and important adaptation strategies when it comes to major ecosystem disruption. I have sort of four thoughts uh, stemming from this. And and then we'll to bring us to a close of the show. Uh, the first is it's a, it's a small thing, a little bit, but I but I do think it ends up being uh, one of the central issues I have actually with with sort of you know Bendel's position, in which he has a point early up in the top there where you mentioned that you have to quote give up on sustainable de- sustainable development, and while. Obviously, there is a significant amount of, of, of the world of, of our world that needs to find ways to reduce our impacts on the world. If, if you're making the case that we need to stop about what's actually going to happen is that those who are trying to pull themselves out of, out of poverty or those who um, are, are, are the poorest uh, who, who need, you know, who historically would need or be looking for economic growth to allow themselves to survive or, or to, you know, to, to pull themselves out of poverty should not be helped, right? This It's hard to hear this argument with not, without hearing a little bit of like, well, we cannot let the people who are currently suffering the most, you know, uh, reduce their suffering because that already, you know, that, that, that's not, that's a waste of our time because society is about to collapse. I can't, I can't entirely separate those two thoughts. Now that said, the second point I have is that given its original audience, uh, you know, I do think that those people who work in corporate sustainability need to understand that there are incredibly dangerous stakes. You know, this cannot be a system where the people who are working corporate sustainability or sustainability management or trying to, you know, maintain these spaces think that they have all the time in the world that like, or that if, if their job is in any way protecting or slowing down the actual need for change, then, then even if you're in the sustainability field, you are not, not helping. Uh, you know, if you're hindering the deep societal changes we need, even if, you know, you're doing, you know, you're seeing yourself doing some good, you desperately need to understand the stakes that we live in and, and, and how, how significant the changes that need to be exist are. Um, and, and I, you know, I am in some ways swayed by the concept that we do need to have a real conversation about deep societal change. 
you know, but, you know, in this in his work, Bendel does not really effectively in any way uh, define what societal collapse even means. And so and so we're not really getting very far in that conversation in without without definitions. You know, it's very simple to be able to always move that definition from either super dire when you're trying to get people to pay people's attention and then dial it all the way back to being like, oh, no, I just mean we have to like fundamentally alter capitalism, which obviously still is a huge change, but is not, you know, as dire as what people often likely imagine, you know, Mad Max type styles uh, of, of societal collapse could mean. But. The, the the last point I have on this, which is sort of the I think the thing that maybe to me covers the the most broad uh, you know disagreements going on here, which it comes down to scientific literacy, I think, um, and in the ways we understand and interpret science, which has become increasingly important. You know, uh, we've seen anti-science, anti-vaccine, um, you know, these anti on the rise during COVID and, and even before that. And scientific literacy really hinges on paying attention not to the fringe cases, but to the bulk of consensus. Even if it takes consensus a little bit longer to move towards what is true, the if if you're constantly pulling at the fringes for the newest thing or the or or what you see as the most important thing, you know, I you are always you're gonna get conflicting information. You're gonna get one study that says, you know, we're absolutely doomed, another study saying we're absolutely fine. Um, and people will just believe the world they're going to believe in. Whereas the sort of, you know, the bulk, slower scientific consensus model is what you need to be paying attention to if you want to sort of, you know, be able to move forward with a with a, with a shared understanding and, and the most true understanding. You know, obviously some people who are, you know, who come out and say they believe, you know, that that a certain part of science turns out to be true, even if they're you know chastised at the beginning. But slowly but surely, that's the way the science works. You know, you, you have a theory, and then and then it gets pulled into the consensus or or not. It's disproven. And our our need, especially the way that the way that 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 science news happens of jumping on a most recent study and then and then and then saying it's the new fact or new what scientists now believe, is not only hurts. Um, our understanding, uh, but also it hurts scientific belief because then people, the news, you know, the average person who's not doing their deep research is reading one article saying that science scientists are now saying that we're all doomed, and the next article saying scientists now believe we're all fine, and that back and forth makes them believe well, uh, these guys don't know what they're talking about at all, and they cast off the cast uh, doubt on the whole operation, and so, you know, like I think there's. What's interesting here is I think that there is desperately a need to have a conversation about what you know, fundamentally change our society looks like. However, you know, a lot of the things that, so the Bendel put, uh, put forward, uh, you know, have their own deep flaws. And so it, you get in this sort of weird tension, I think.